Well, as I prepared for this sermon, um, I must say that I grew thankful. Thankful to be at a church that prioritizes learning, receiving, and knowing the word of truth. And at the same time, I felt challenged that we are nowhere close to where we should be. Let me explain. Well, we may look around and compare ourselves to other churches or other people or those in our lives, looking left and right and thinking as we look out into the sea of faces of cultural Christianity, and we think we are more mature or wise or knowledgeable in the scriptures, that our viewpoints are more correct or most correct, and that we are right in our doctrine, in the structure and ecclesiology of our church, we are in the same moments potentially falling into a grave error. First of all, comparison is a dangerous and slippery slope upon which you will only inevitably fall into sins like anxiety, bitterness, jealousy, or arrogance, self-righteousness, and pride. Our standard, biblically speaking, as Christians is the holiness of God. And we will always have more room to grow when we put ourselves up to the holiness of God. We hold ourselves as an anthill of good deeds in comparison to the mountain of who God is. Second, our God is infinite. For us to claim that we know enough about an infinite God at any point is the most inaccurate assumption or belief that you could hold. To think that you and me as finite created beings could understand his will, his ways, his character, his word so much that you could grow complacent is not just wrong, it's absolutely dangerous. Apathy is a breeding ground for stumbling saints. Lethargy is a sleepiness in which dozing Christians crash while seated at the wheel of life. Indifference is a black hole of the soul that is absent of all light and is constantly pulling you deeper into the darkness. And in this passage, we will see that there is a prayer in which I believe there is a baked in warning coming from the concerned heart of the Apostle Paul watching sheep that are playing in pastures nearby wolves to which they have grown possibly unconcerned with. To the drifting sheep, he cries out in a prayer for their safety in such a way that he intends the sheep to hear and be roused from their stupor. A prayer that calls them back to the basics, the basics which they may be thinking of too lightly, the basics by which they will not only be saved but be kept and matured to the end, basics which they will never outgrow but will only deepen their understanding of who God is. So too, tonight I want to talk to you about the basics, the gospel. The gospel in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And when we grow content with our knowledge of the gospel, we let our guard down. We don't continually go back to the gospel in all things. When we don't do that, we will inevitably look somewhere else to some other source of truth. And when we don't see the gospel as a perpetual process by which we are being sanctified, we are prone to take an off-ramp and be led astray by whatever is appealing to add on to that gospel. 
So how do we tighten the screws of gospel maturity deeper and deeper in order to stabilize our faith against anything that comes against us, including false teaching? In this passage, I want to unveil for you three phases of the gospel's maturing process that lead to steadfast spiritual stability. Three phases of the gospel's maturing process that lead to steadfast spiritual stability. The gospel's impact on a believer is not just circular reasoning, but one of spiritual deepening in a a spiral. Each phase takes us deeper and deeper, as C.S. Lewis would say, further up and further in. And these phases are to be part of a perpetual cycle, the spiral of a believer's life. And again, we will be looking at three phases of the gospel's maturing process that lead to steadfast spiritual stability. So the first phase found in verse nine of our passage tonight is to know the gospel in spiritual fullness. Know the gospel in spiritual fullness. It should be noted that this passage is a prayer and that that prayer is very interconnected. And while my sermon is not gonna focus on prayer, Paul's example for us informs us that prayer should be regular and with thanksgiving and selflessly concerned for other believers, that they would grow. He believed his prayer would actually be heard by the living God and have an effective work in the hearts of those he was praying for. And the effective work in which Paul prays for to the living God is is what I want to direct your attention to tonight. Our prayer starting in verse nine begins by dealing directly with these fused ideas to the previous passage that was on thankfulness that we heard only a few weeks ago, starting in verse three. The passage begins for, this passage tonight begins for this reason also, which is referring back to the faith and love and hope that the Colossians had flowing from the gospel's work in their lives. That was producing thanksgiving in Paul for which he was expressing to God and and on their behalf. Paul began with thanksgiving, and we'll see that he actually ends this prayer with thanksgiving, which means it bookends the whole of this prayer. He starts and ends this way. And not only is it tied together by thankfulness, but there's all of these phrases. If you start comparing and contrasting the first few verses with, of this thanksgiving, starting in verse three, that flow into verse nine and following tonight, we see that we give thanks to the Father, verse three, and then in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Since we heard, verse three, since we heard of it, verse nine. Praying always, verse three. We have not ceased to pray, verse nine. Saints in verse four and 12. The use of all shows up in verses 4, 6, 9, 10, and 11. Understood is the verb form of knowledge used in verses 9 and 10. Bearing fruit and increasing shows up in verses 6 and 10. Even the idea of a future hope that is laid up in heaven in verse 5 connects to this idea of inheritance in verse 12. There's a lot of interconnectedness happening here. And I think it's worth us seeing. Notice that Paul is going above and beyond to show us that his intercession, his supplication, is flowing out of his thanksgiving. He is fusing them together. And we see that it's going back to thanksgiving at the end. His requests are therefore bracketed by it. Why would he do this? 
Well, I think the repetition shows us that Paul is not just asking for completely new things, but for a continuation of things that God has already been doing in the life of the Colossian believers. And this gives the Colossians not just a window into this prayer, but into their own lives and the work of the Spirit in them to encourage them to keep on going, even in the face of the false teachers that we have heard about are some of the context of this book. All of that is in the repetition. It's, it's calling them to continue to walk in the same path and not fall into the teaching of these false teachers. God is in control of it all. And so that comes into the thrust of this prayer. Why is he praying this in the first place? To keep these believers, to see them be strengthened and matured and, and kept on this path, steadfast in the face of false teaching. And as we continue, we'll see that Paul is unceasingly, meaning whenever he prays, he is asking for these things on behalf of the Colossian believers. To pray and to ask, both words used here in verse nine are, are synonymous. Um, they're therefore layering emphasis. There's an intensity in this continuation of his prayer. And he prays for what in verse nine? He prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So filled, this word here, it's not like we have some spiritual tank of your spirit that can get down to run on empty at some point. That's not the idea of what's being gotten at here. But instead this describes someone who's completely characterized by an attribute. Someone who's filled in this way would be characterized by these things. And we see that Paul does this in other places. Romans 1.29, he gives a laundry list of evil deeds that characterize the unrighteous, those who are filled with unrighteousness. He's saying the same thing here, that we be filled or characterized by the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding, spiritual wisdom and understanding. In contrast, this prayer here is that the saints of the Colossian church would be marked by knowing God's will, that they would be not marked by unrighteousness, but by being those who know God's will. And this isn't the type of will that's, do I take this job or that job? That, that's not what we're getting at here. This is different. And I, I think what Paul's doing is pointing us to something in regards to the gospel. And to see this, I think you have to turn to Ephesians 1 with me. So please turn with me to Ephesians 1. So as we work our way there, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 5, we're going to see some of these connections. I'll read through verse 9. It says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Similar words here. He made known to us, again knowledge, the, the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. So in this parallel passage which if you just pull out again and try to compare and contrast you're going to see a lot of things light up many of the phrases overlap. There's a lot of parallel things being done in these, this language in both places here to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. 
And what we start seeing is that this will, knowing his will, the will of God, is to understand the different components that God is doing in redemptive history, in the gospel, through the gospel, as he's working through the whole of history to unpack the ways he would redeem his people and forgive them of their sins. To know God's will is to know his sovereign plan of redemption and all that flows out of Christ's redeeming work. Paul further clarifies that this knowledge should be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. A spirit-given ability to discern truth and correctly apply it. To know what it means and use it. So it's one thing to just know about data. It's another thing to know what it means and it's another thing completely to actually apply that data correctly. We're seeing all these layers be applied here. And we live in an age when there's more information than we can actually intake sometimes. And we take it in without understanding it correctly. We, we go after the things we want to hear or that fit with what we already hold to. We hear something and assume its validity instead of doing the due diligence to go and vet all of that that source may be. And that happens too in our spiritual lives, doesn't it? All of a sudden, false teaching sneaks its way in in a way that's palatable. No one goes after something Googling false teaching and then chooses to believe that. That's not how it works, right? You're slowly seduced into this mindset and being marked by that. And, and Paul is saying, whoa, hold, hold on here. Be careful of this. I, I pray that you would know something very different than that, that you know the real things so well that you could identify the wrong things. I see the counterfeit, so to speak. To know the will of God, his redeeming work and how it functions and how that applies to your life. And, and non-believers, they're blind to these things. He's praying this for believers. These are those who can see it. And we get frustrated all the time with those who do not know these things or understand them. And we need to be careful and pray for them that they would get the first stages of this knowing of God in salvation in the first place. So even to have access to spiritual wisdom and understanding should drive us to have pity on those who are lost instead of looking down our noses at them and should cause us to grow in our maturity of our knowing more rightly. So how will they live rightly if they do not know how to live? How will the Colossians dismiss false teaching that Paul is warning them about if they don't know the gospel in the first place, the real thing? Doctrine matters. And we all need to recognize that. It's not just for the scholastically elite. This is for all of us. We must know things about God, know things about his word, understand the doctrine, understand how redemptive history fits together, know the gospel. And that's not something we stop knowing at some point. We, we keep using it and applying it. Spiritual maturity that is steadfast even in the face of false teaching comes from knowing, living, and rehearsing the gospel. And so we see that there is now a second phase. A second phase of the gospel's maturing process that leads to steadfast and spiritual stability found within these verses. And I, I find it in verses 10 through 12a. So once we know the gospel in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, then what do we do with that knowledge? It should lead us to something. If we apply that understanding and wisdom, it should lead us to live the gospel in pleasing worthiness. 
That's the second phase of the gospel's maturing process that leads to steadfast and spiritual stability. It's to live the gospel in pleasing worthiness. We, we need to live in light of the gospel. How do we apply it to our lives? Verse 10a hits the answer to why Paul is praying this, clip, this prayer for the Colossians now. Why would he pray for them to know the gospel at all? Well, this is the purpose. So that they will walk worthily of the Lord who is over them, of which they are servants, in a way that's pleasing to him in all respects. To walk simply in this passage is just another way of saying how you live, how, how you go about living your life. What marks the way that you go about your daily living? That's their walk. And this walk is further described here in verse 10 as in a manner that is befitting of the Lord Jesus. And that's what worthy means here, befitting. This lifestyle fits with someone who's submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you were actually submitted to Jesus as Lord, your life would fit this type of manner of worthy living. You would be worthy of him, a worthy subject of his. And this worthy of manner, this manner of worthy living is also to be done in a manner that's pleasing to him in all respects. Completely pleasing to the Lord. Not one part of your life should be displeasing to him then. No aspect can you leave off the table of the sanctification phases in your life of growing deeper and deeper in your sanctification. You, you can't take parts of your life and say this part's for sanctification, but this part I'm not going to deal with. We're, we're not partitioned out in that kind of way. He, he's saying we need to be pleasing to the Lord in all respects, in all that we do, in all that we think, in all that we feel. It must be pleasing to God. That is what worthy living and pleasing living would, would look like. So, so what does that look like, though, in some more practical sense? And luckily for you and me, Paul goes on and expresses more of what that looks like. In verse 10, he continues through verse 12 to unpack four ways that this all-pleasing worthiness fleshes out through four participles. And I, I will hit those in lettered subpoints for you for those who are taking notes and, and don't want to get confused in numbers and letters here. Uh, Subpoint A is bearing fruit. Um, this exact word for bearing fruit is only used eight times in all the scriptures. And it's not the same word that's in John 15 with abiding in the vine and bearing fruit, though that idea overlaps. However, there's an interesting use of it in Matthew 13, 8, um, which says this, and the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, there's that word, and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. This is the, the parable of the sower, where, where the good seed is thrown on the soils, and on the good soil, it bears fruit, is what we're told. It's the same word. And we're told within our passage that this is in every good work. So again, emphasizing this comprehensive nature, it's holistic. And of these four participles that we'll see, these four subpoints. We're going to see that two of them are active and two of them are passive. Two of them are something we must do and two of them are things that happen to us. And bear fruit is one of the active ones. It's something that we're to be doing, something we're to be participating in. 
The believer has been freed to do every good thing in the gospel. That they're to bear fruit in every good work. That's what it says here. That's what Paul is praying for. The salvation of a believer should be actively pursuing and bearing the fruit of good deeds. After salvation happens, that's what should come about in our lives. I mean, it's a sign of a a healthy and mature tree if it bears fruit, doesn't it? That's what we would look at. We would say, man, that tree has matured to the place where it can bear fruit. In the early stages and years, it may not do that. And so pursuing bearing fruit, I mean, beautiful, luscious, ripe, tasty spiritual fruit that is pleasing and honoring to God, that we can present to him as, as we live our lives as worthy sacrifices to him, that, that's what this is after. So in a sense, what's fascinating to me is the application of this point is application. You don't just know truth, but, but you have to apply the knowledge of the truth. Be doers of the word, not just hearers, James says. So what if you actually sought to apply one thing from every sermon you ever listened to? If you just took one thing, 52 sermons a year, that's 52 ways that you have produced something in order to bear fruit unto God and and seeing a good work come about in your life, whether it be thinking or doing behavior action. And think about the multiplying effect that has amongst an entire congregation not even just in the ways that you rubbing shoulders with other people as you apply something, getting them to be stirred up unto good deeds and spurred on toward that end. But if you just see that happen amongst all of us in this church alone, that's over 16,000 good deeds in a year. And to apply the word is something we actively do. And that, that's what he's saying, to see that it would be bear fruit unto every good work. But there's more and we must press on. And it is... Increasing is the second of these, B of our subpoints. The second way to live a worthy life pleasing to God is to increase in the knowledge of God. And this comes from the end of verse 10. And now a couple things I want you to see here. This is passive, unlike the active bearing fruit. It's happening to us as God reveals himself to us. Now we certainly have other ways to utilize revelation other than just discarding it. We can apply it to our lives, but we cannot know God if he doesn't reveal himself to us. We, we can only know him if he chooses to do that. And so he is the one who's active in this and we are the ones receiving this knowing. And also see here that there's a spiral going on that I alluded to earlier. In verse nine, Paul prays that the Colossians be filled, passive verb, with the knowledge of God's will. Knowledge. And in verse 10, he tells us that this is so that they will walk worthily, which looks like increasing in the knowledge of God. So we have knowledge so that you will walk to grow in knowledge. It's an interesting thing here. It's not circular reasoning. It's actually a spiral of deepening. The, the more you know God, the more you will live in light of who he is. And the more that you live in light of who he is, the more you will know him. And it continues to grow us deeper and deeper. Also notice that these first two subpoints or ways of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord are bearing fruit and increasing, which I think are intentionally worded to point us back to Genesis 1.28 where it says, be fruitful and multiply. It's very similar language in the way this is drawing our eyes to it. 
These two participles are joined with the word and, unlike any of the others in this passage, linking them together in a unique way, and I think drawing us back to Genesis. So in this connection, we see that there's another sense of knowing God's will for the redemption through the gospel and living in light of it, and that's to see the restoration to the original humanity, what God had, be fruitful and multiply. See that my image would be born within you and multiplied to the ends of the earth. And he's saying, let's see that done in you now in sanctification as you bear fruit and as it increases within you, as you know more of who I am and what I do in redemption. So may this process be evident in you and me. May we not stop somewhere in the process, but keep growing in our knowledge of God that we bear fruit and that we would know him more and more, that we would bear fruit and know him more and more. We must press on though. The third way we are given to live a worthy life in a pleasing manner is strengthening. We see this in verse 11. And I want you to jot down Ephesians 3, 14 through 20. I don't have time to jump into that to show you parallels there as well. But it would do you well to just link that to this passage and, and study it as you are diving into more of Colossians 1. The strengthening in Colossians 1, 11 is another passive participle. God is the one strengthening We do not strengthen ourselves. We we are not capable of pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps to see even our sanctification take place. We, We may know that in our justification, we're saved by faith alone, but so too in our sanctification. And that is the point here. God is all powerful and thus he can strengthen us in all power. This is who he is, which by the way is the fourth time the word all is used to emphasize again this comprehensive nature of the, mature, the maturation of a believer. As he is seeing believers matured through this prayer, it's all encompassing of who they are. There's nothing that is off the table. And that's the point, your entire walk, all that you are is being overhauled by the gospel. Your mind, your will, your actions, your behavior, and even your emotions which we will see here in a second. The gospel changes everything. And why is Paul praying for strengthening? Well, he tells us for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And it's possible that these are synonyms again to show emphasis, but there might be a slight nuance difference that endurance is more for situations and patience is more for people. That there's a personal touch to the patience. So again, whether you are in a situation or with a person in a relationship, there is an all-encompassing nature here. Surely we can see that this all ties back to the whole aim of the book to, to guard against false teaching, to persevere, to be faithful, to endure, to see patience. May God strengthen you that you would persevere to the end, even through false teaching. And there's application baked into this. We, we try to have our own power to protect ourselves we depend on our inglorious weakened flesh and not God's glorious might as it says here in this passage of course we'll fail when we do that friends rest in that assurance the all-powerful God is strengthening you with all power according to his glorious might to bring about in you steadfastness and patience. I mean, that is beautiful and humbly pray for for that in your own life and that in the lives of others around you. The final way of living a worthy life, subpoint D here, is giving thanks, the fourth participle. And this is again active and it brings us all the way back to verse three where the thanksgiving started, a prayer of thanksgiving. 
Again, the gospel is a process, it's a spiral, and he, he's even doing that in his prayer. He, he's starting with thanksgiving and leading into all these things and ending in thanksgiving to start it all over again. In both, both instances, thanksgiving we see here is directed towards God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and now we have actually been implied as Christians to be the ones who are the sons. Before it was Jesus, in the first reference back in verse three. He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but now we are the ones who are receiving the familial blessing of the inheritance that he describes here. Notice also, it's not just the act of thanksgiving that God cares about, but also the heart behind it, the emotions. He says to give thanks joyously, joyfully giving thanks. God cares about how you feel. And in particular, this passage, we, we see that he cares about how you feel when you give thanks. Is your thanksgiving begrudging? Is it the leftovers of your prayer or just the rote thought you add before a meal? The gospel working in you should produce joy. And if it doesn't, then you have either not fully grasp what the gospel is at all and missed the point of it, of what it really is and you've been duped or at best, you've let your gospel muscles experience atrophy, which is a bad sign for your sanctification, by the way, if you remove the gospel from your life. He says we need to know this in order to see these things come out so that we would bear fruit and increase and be strengthened and so on. Now give thanks. The gospel working in you should produce joy. A believer that is ever increasing in the knowledge of God resulting in a life that is ever living for God will have constant fuel for joyful thanksgiving. And because this passage one long sentence, this thanksgiving directly connects to the third and final point of the sermon here. The third and final phase of the gospel's maturing process that leads to steadfast spiritual stability is to rehearse the gospel in joyful thankfulness. Rehearse the gospel in joyful thankfulness. And I get that in 12b through 14. And the key word here is rehearse, meaning to come back and, and back again. And that, that is what Paul is modeling here, isn't it, for the Colossians? And if you think about anything that Paul has ever written, that's what he's modeling. He's coming back to the gospel again and again. We, we don't move on from that. He prays it over them. He rehearses it for them. This thanks is directed to God the Father. And why are we to be thankful to that Father exactly? Well, verse 12 tells us that this God the Father qualified us, which means that we have been made worthy or fitted or appropriate, which almost certainly is a parallel idea to the worthily living that we're supposed to see flow out of our knowing of God earlier in the passage. These are synonyms in the Gospels, and, and though they're not the exact word, they relate. Being qualified and living a life worthy of this Lord are, are similar. They're, they're synonyms. They're related. They're tied together. God has made all of us chosen ones who are worthy. And so we as believers walk worthily. And as we do that, we're giving thanks joyfully. Paul says, let me rehearse with you and remind you, even myself again, what God has done. Shifting from this you, your language that's been the common thing from the earliest 
you know, sentences of this book, now he pivots all of a sudden to a we-us language, including himself. And he, he, see, he shows us four deeds that God does. That he rescued us, he transferred us, he redeemed us, he forgave us. That's what being qualified looks like. That, that's what he has done. He unpacks what being, un, being qualified by God looks like in these four different ways, these four different deeds that God has done. Two of these are referencing a contrast between two domains. One domain is the authority marked by darkness, and from that kingdom we've been rescued as believers. We've, we've been saved. The other is the kingdom of the beloved son, and this kingdom of light, where I think that inheritance of light is referencing, this beloved son who, as John will talk about the contrast between light and darkness, that there's a, a light kingdom as well, the kingdom of the beloved son. And that's the one we have been transferred into. We've been placed there. In Jesus, we have liberation and freedom, deliverance and restoration. We have been freed from the bondage of sin and declared righteous in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says Paul in Romans 8.1. These Four deeds are, are far too loaded with imagery from the rest of the scriptures for me to get into tonight. The exodus, deliverance, the inheritance and the land promise, the kinsman, redeemer and Ruth, the sonship relating to the Messiah and so on. The list goes because the gospel story has spanned all of redemptive history and that's what he's talking about here. And it culminates in the cross of Christ which he draws our attention to. But I wanna focus here on what Paul does and, and I he does this in nearly anything he writes. He brings it back to the gospel and really puts an emphasis on what God has done in Christ. Again, it's not in our strength or in our power. He has strengthened us. He has strengthened us in his might because he has allowed us to know him. These are things God has done. And so the process continues. We receive the gospel and therefore come to know God and knowing God leads to living out the gospel. Living out the gospel leads to thankfulness and deeper levels of knowing and living and thanking. And so may we too put our guards up against false teaching that is looming everywhere in big and small ways in our culture, in our lives. May we not grow apathetic to the truths of the gospel but instead follow the gospel process deeper and deeper into Christ. We, we take this process and see our lives transformed by the gospel continually, that we would know the gospel in spiritual fullness, that, that we would live the gospel in pleasing worthiness and that we would rehearse the gospel in joyful thankfulness. Back to the basics, know the gospel, live the gospel, rehearse the gospel. And we follow the revolutions of this spiral ever deeper into Christ, further up and further in. Spiritual maturity that is steadfast even in the face of false teaching comes from knowing, living, and rehearsing the gospel. And may that be true of us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are in awe of your gospel. And there, there is so much here to unpack that we could spend days and months just unveiling what the gospel means for us now being grateful for what you have done, rehearsing the gospel and finding ways that it applies to our lives to live it out. I pray too for us that you would allow us to, to know you more deeply, to grow in the knowledge of who you are and how you're working through your redemptive plan, through your will 
and see how that applies to us specifically so that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of our Lord Jesus. That people would see that, that we would be bearing fruit and increasing in our knowledge of you and going deeper down this spiral, further through the phases of the gospel's process in our lives. They would grow in our sanctification to look more like our Savior evermore until you return. We pray this in your name, amen.